Howdy. Welcome to the Managing Expectations podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Winger. So, a couple of weeks ago, we sat down. Uh, it was me, my little sister, Missy, uh, Tirza, the Watch Femme, and Paul, the Brit. And the four of us recorded a very fine podcast for you. Uh, the thing is, we had technical difficulties, and so you'll n- probably never hear how terrific the three of them were and how I kept interrupting and had uh, all sorts of uh, mundane uh, things to add. So this is going to be a solo fill-in episode of the Managing Expectations podcast. I do have something I think is pretty cool for you. It's a book review and, and and by review I mean a a broader range of uh, reviewing uh, reviewing uh, not just uh, the book uh, but also the man uh, the life and times of Stevie Van Zant. so uh, uh, stick around and we will uh, uh, try to keep you interested As I said, I'm Jeff Winger. I am solo this week, which is a bummer. But uh, we've got some we've got some stuff planned. So uh, Steve Steve Van Zant is an interesting character. Uh, he's participated in uh, no fewer than two uh, epochal pop cultural endeavors. Uh, first is Bruce Springsteen's uh, Once and Future Sideman, and as fictional Sideman, Silvio Dante on the HBO drama, hit drama, The Sopranos. Uh, he was also catalytic to bringing pressure upon South Africa's apartheid regime. Uh, would Nelson Mandela have ever taken that quote long walk to freedom without Steve Van Zant and artists against apartheid? No one can say, but Van Zant has an idea and he keeps it near his very formidable self image. Last year he wrote his memoirs. It they are called Unrequited Infatuations, Odyssey of a Rock and Roll Consigliere, A Cautionary Tale, uh, which is plenty of title. Um, Given my druthers, I would have urged him to call it Odyssey of a Rock and Roll Consigliere, or maybe just Confessions of a Rock and Roll uh, Consigliere. Uh, a play on the 1950s uh, Confessions of a Teenage Whatever. Um, Van Zandt is much enamored of the culture that began, the pop culture that began in the 50s and, and 60s and uh, re- really the 70s, and he's 
uh, dismissive of a lot of stuff since. But um, uh, he, he talks about the invention of the teenager and, uh, you know, I, I think he's not wrong. Uh, there was a time when uh, young people uh, were in school and then they got jobs. Uh, and um, beginning in the 20th century in the U.S., uh, there was this in-between period uh, for uh, young people. Uh, Van Zant is a participant in uh, many uh, noteworthy events. Uh, he he was present at others and um, is capable of joking at his own expense uh, about the lucrative events he sidestepped. The biggest, biggest example of this is leaving Springsteen's E Street Band just as the uh, two-year-long Born in the USA world tour was beginning. Uh, it was a stadium. Uh, it was, it was going to be a stadium tour. I saw Springsteen and the E Street Band um, without Van Zant uh, at Mile High Stadium a couple of times. Um, uh, he, you know, he played the sports arenas. He played um, stadiums, outdoor stadiums, uh, and the band uh, Springsteen um, got rich, and the band uh, did very well. And in the meantime, uh, Van Zant had gone solo with his band, uh, the Disciples of Soul. So it was Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul, and it was a large. Uh, in its original incanta uh, incarnation, <laughs> incantation, uh, he'd be all right with that. Um, in its original incarnation, uh, it was a large band with a horn section, um, uh, and he played smaller venues, uh, uh, touring with a large band, and, and uh, that was just a less lucrative affair. Um, uh, after more than a decade of work, uh, uh, building an audience through uh, legendary uh, live performances uh, and uh, also garnering uh, critical acclaim. Springsteen and his, and his band were about to uh, have a big payday uh, and th it was at that time that uh, Little Steven uh, released Men Without Women and uh, toured with the Disciples of Soul. Uh, I saw him twice at uh, Denver's Late Lamented Rainbow Music Hall. It was um, a festival seating. There wasn't, uh, there, it, it wasn't a, a club in the sense that uh, uh, they served drinks, uh, but the acoustics were great. It held about 2,000 people. I've talked about it on the, here on the podcast before. Um, it was a theater. And uh, a lot of really great bands uh, went through there. I saw, I saw the Pretenders there. I saw uh, Warren Zevon there. And I saw uh, Little Steven twice. Uh, the first time with uh, the horn section, and the second time was more of a uh, stripped down uh, New York. I don't know. Um, it, it, they weren't quite punk, but they were work. They were close to it. It was more like uh, uh, they right, reminded me of like the uh, edgy New York bands like uh, Thin Lizzy, 
you know, something like that. Um, more about this in, in due course, but, but back to the book, Unrequited Infatuations. Um, I was drawn to it for many reasons uh, that I'll go into. Uh, looking at the evidence, um, <laughs> including including his uh, uh, many uh, assertions that he is a considerate lover. Uh, I don't find Steve Van Zandt uh, all that likable, and I'm split on his body of work. Um, but I think he's sm I think he's smart about music, and um, I think he must be respected. Uh, based on his uh, uh, talent and contributions and his experience, uh, his proximity to the good and the great. Uh, and I would think that he would be able to live with that. So, for me, Steve Van Zandt was near Springsteen and had more of a was very collaborative in the process it's when he started to not feel part of the collaboration with springsteen's uh artistic um elevation that that um he left the band uh there in uh it must have been 83 84. uh I wanted to read the book to see what he had to say about that. Now, he and Springsteen have obviously buried the hatchet. He he says in the book that they've had uh, three fights in their long, in their decades-long friendship. Um, he he worked with others. He he's written songs. He's produced others. Um, I think that's uh, very interesting. Uh, I, I think that he can't, in spite of a very healthy ego, um, he, I, I like how he's able to um, acknowledge certain limitations. Uh, certainly he recognizes that he could have been more materially successful, that he could be richer than he is uh, had he done other things. I also like what he has to say about being a part of the band. Uh, being in the band is part of the deal. He writes, for example, he says, uh, um, uh, when West, Sto West Side Story came out in 1981, uh, I went to see it in Red Bank, uh, that is to say New Jersey. The movie had a profound impact on me in two ways. First, there was the gang thing. It was so cool to us suburban fifth graders that we formed our own gangs and attacked each other with pens during recess. Whoever got written on the most lost. For me, gangs weren't about conflict or competition. They spoke to my natural impulse to belong to something. I remember getting busted as the ringleader for that one. Uh, and then he goes on and talks about... Uh, uh, West Side Story also um, uh, introducing him to Latino music and uh, he uh, goes on and, and talks about his feelings towards Anita uh, again um, 
he was just a kid, but um, these feelings would <laughs> would would grow into uh, what he de what he describes as um, you know uh, uh, a, f a fondness for uh, the ladies. Um, it's true, and I think that a lot of us feel that uh, wanting to be a part of the bigger thing. But what I sense in, and this is the main thing, and I, this is what I think is interesting. It's the contribution of the guy who's not the guy. He's not the man. So Van Zant makes no secret about being not the boss. He works for the boss. Springsteen is the boss. Springsteen has the final say. Springsteen writes the checks. Uh, but make no mistake, um, uh, we might consider Van Zant uh, first among equals uh, or even an underboss. Uh, he writes about this, about being uh, uh, the side man or the conciliary, as it were. Uh, for example, here in um, Unrequited Infatuations, he says... Um, in those days, Bruce always wanted me with him. I was like his little brother, and he knew I was always watching his back. It was always a complimentary relationship. He was, he is, a year older and very much a mentor when it came to the art and the business. But there were some things that I did better, like arranging songs, and I always had more street smarts. I was, I am, much more connected to the social world because I had to work in it. Where he was always a little, excuse me, he was always a bit distant. Excuse me. He was always a bit distant, focusing on creating his own world and living in it. So, um, uh, he would, for many years, be an indispensable part of Springsteen. Uh, he, he wasn't in the earliest... Um, uh, lineups of the E Street Band. Uh, Van Zant came on, uh, wasn't actually uh, a, a big player on um, Born to Run, uh, Springsteen's third record, and the one that really put him on the map, as it were. Um, Van Zant uh, arranged uh, some of the horn sections but then got into it with Springsteen's then manager, Mike Appel, and so uh, took a walk. Uh, Van Zant then cut his teeth um, uh, touring with Oldies Axe. Now here's an interesting thing that happened um, after the British invasion. So, uh, and here again, Van Zant talks about how the world uh, split in two in um, 1964 when the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan but uh, all the acts all the rock and roll acts all the rhythm and soul acts that were recording then suddenly became superfluous uh, they were put out to pasture they were cut loose by the record companies and who who then went 
uh, crazy trying to sign um, British mop tops. Okay, so um, Van Zant started uh, touring with these guys who were like in their 30s. Uh, but were suddenly oldies. They weren't hip and relevant. So it was there that he got to um, meet a ton of the classic uh, uh, rock and rollers. Um, it, and, and, and this isn't in the book, but, but I would illustrate it um, this way. It would be pretty cool if a guy heard you got what it takes and said, oh yeah, that's Marv Johnson. Uh, I bet my buddy Chris Levine um, has that sort of encyclopedic knowledge of rock and roll and its roots and where it came from and how we got from there to whatever, Zeppelin to... Uh, you too. Um, I think that what would distinguish a guy like um, uh, Van Zant is that he could hear "You Got What It Takes" by Marv Johnson and tell you uh, where <laughs> where uh, where it was recorded, who played bass, um, who sang backups. Okay, so that's the sort of thing that Van Zant absolutely brings. Uh, to the, uh, uh, the part of his skill set that he brings when he's uh, producing. And he, he's produced um, some people from uh, Lone Justice in the 80s. He, he produced um, a couple of tracks for, for Bob Dylan. And I, I am here to tell you, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but there's a so song on... Um, Okay, so I, I've said before how no one got out of the 80s, uh, no, no musician, no recording artist got out of the 80s without succumbing, without submitting somewhat to the cult of the synthesizer. Um, and that was true even of the great Bob Dylan and his record Empire Burlesque um, has a little bit of that on it. There's a song called uh, When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky uh, that the album version isn't very good. It's okay, but it's not very good. Uh, later on, though, on one of his many bootleg re releases, he does a version that was uh, produced by Little Steven. Uh, uh, Steve Van Zandt plays the guitar solo and... Uh, I think Roy Bitten of the E Street Band plays the piano, and it's great. It's a great rocker. Uh, so that that was um, uh, just an example of uh, uh, Van Zant's uh, producing chops. One of the things that he does, though, and this seems a little petty to me, he always makes a point of saying, "Well, I, I arranged the horns in for this song, and I never got paid for it." Or, I produced this album or these tracks and I never got paid for it. It's like, okay, well, um, I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's shtick. Maybe he's just saying, you know, I'm still waiting for the check. Um, but, <clears throat> I don't know, it, it, it comes across not that funny 
and maybe a little bit uh, petty. So I want to I want to look into the book a little bit and talk about uh, his work as Springsteen's conciliary, his rock and roll conciliary, as well as his uh, um, uh, side man. Um, he he writes about um, darkness on the edge of town, um, recording darkness on the edge of town. Uh, and, uh, okay, before I get into the book, when S a few years ago Springsteen released a double, double album, double CD um, called The Promise, which was a bunch of outtakes from the Darkness in the Edge of Town um, sessions. Uh, and it was the and and the and the the thing about Springsteen is he's always he was always said to be very insecure. He was always sure that each album would be his last. So he just wanted to make it as great as possible. He didn't always bring a lot of written material into the studio, so it got really expensive while he's writing songs, while he's tinkering with songs, and it's expensive to be in a recording studio, to have it and to have the engineers and the technician and to tie up the equipment and the space. Uh, so all of that was uh, going on. And anyway, Springsteen and Van Zant ended up on, on Letterman. And, uh, you know, Darkness on the Edge of Town is such a great record. It's, it's maybe my favorite record of all time. Uh, I ran a symposium here on the Managing Expectations podcast about uh, uh, the uh, uh, about darkness on the edge of town. We had a bunch of people talking about it, and we um, um, uh, <laughs> what do we do? Oh, so so anyway, we we've we've investigated it pretty thoroughly but uh, Van Zant said at the time said um, uh, w when he was on Letterman said that uh, it should have been called 70 Lo Lost Arguments uh, w which which to me is funny he, he, he has said I cannot even believe how great that record could have been if only Springsteen had listened to him and you know I think it's like the greatest record ever so uh it makes me wonder what he had in mind. Springsteen sticks to his guns and says, "Are you out of your mind?" It was it was best the way it was. So um, uh, he writes about darkness being a very dark uh, experience. <laughs> Said he developed a uh, little bit of a drug problem that that he eventually um, got, got over. Um, he he wrote about uh, John Landau, who was uh, Springsteen's manager and also the producer of several of uh, his records, including these that we're talking about now, uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town and, and The River, which we'll get to in a second. Um, he said, as if John's new role as manager wasn't complicated enough, his unique set of skills knowledge of culture and experience with psychoanalysis made his other new role equally invaluable as he redefined the role of the record producer. 
not that he wasn't musical he was and is very musical but the e street band largely produced themselves and i would be taking more responsibility for the music and sound over the next few records his being landau's far more important role and unique value was in helping bruce analyze and discover the bigger picture the themes he would be talking about and his artistic identity Bruce, even having artistic aspirations, was already odd. Very few rockers were thinking that way. Jackson Brown, maybe, and who else? Even the Beatles didn't think about such things until they were liberated from having to reproduce their songs live, which resulted in Revolver. Then their imaginations were free to take them to wonderful new bizarre places as varied as Eleanor Rigby and Tomorrow Never Knows. In spite of his game-changing accomplishments, Bob Dylan didn't seem to have any artistic pretensions at all. So, I, you know, I, I think that's interesting. He goes on uh, and says, um, we closed out 1978, still on the road with darkness, still fighting for our lives on stage. We really became a band on that tour. Longevity, if you can survive it, brings unexpected rewards. That's why bands should stay together. It's not just talent, it's loyalty, and over time, history. Four of us originals left. You can maybe find the talent, you can probably buy the loyalty, but you can't replace the history. And believe me, when it's a bad night, tough conditions, new audience, rainy and cold, or even a particularly good one, you don't want to look to your left and see a gun for hire. You want to see me. And I think that that's cool. I think that's cool. I think that's psychologically relevant both to Van Zant and frankly, to me. Uh, I think that it makes it makes me think of getting older and figuring out where your place in the universe is uh are you are am i the man are are you are you the man <laughs> maybe you are i i think uh uh charles dickens uh as he frequently did um had just an amazing uh, an amazing first line in Daber Copperfield. Uh, chapter one, I am born. Okay, He says, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. I think, I think you got to figure out whether or not you're the hero of your own life or whether or not that's going to be somebody else. I am friends with guys that I would consider quarterbacks and it is my privilege to be their offensive lineman. Uh, uh, my, my job is uh, is to protect. I, I, I think 
Um, I I look at oh, okay, so in real life you have guys like um, all right, very very accomplished guys, uh, and we all know them guys with tons of energy who accomplish you know more by 10 a.m. than mo the rest of us will accomplish in a day. Uh, maybe they're really organized. They just have a quality. Um, it's said that uh, David Petraeus, who was uh, the architect of the surge and um, America, the American military's, um, uh, I don't know, uh, grabbing... Um, a tie from the jaws of defeat in Iraq. Uh, I, I, you know, anyway, he was a he's a very accomplished guy, and his book, uh, his uh, field guide to counterinsurgency, is still taught in the military institutes. It's uh, a very uh, powerful um, look at at uh, you know winning hearts and minds and so forth. Anyway, Petraeus needs like between four and six hours of sleep a night. Uh, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to be up at two in the morning uh, responding to your email because that's when I do it because I'm so high energy. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to reply to your email when I can. And I just think that there are people like that. I think that there are people who just have that much on the ball. And I think that there's a certain wisdom in recognizing whether you are or aren't that guy. Um, uh, Scott Galloway, who's all over the internet and other media, uh, will talk about um, you know the things accomplished by Bill Gates or Steve jo Jobs, and say, assume you're not that guy. Uh, most of us are unremarkable. Most of us are not unique. And so I would illustrate this with the Rat Pack, uh, the name given to Sinatra and his buddies in the early 60s. So uh, Sinatra was Sinatra. Sinatra is the chairman of the board. He's old blue eyes. Uh, he was by most telling. Um, not that nice a guy, but he had a voice of the ages and he had it. He had a charisma, uh, as a one fictionalized version uh, of, of, uh, their story put it, uh, one character said, and I paraphrase, but, um, Sinatra has this quality where it, it was, a, it was a female character. She says, um, you know, one minute you want to mother him, and uh, one minute you want to canoodle with him. It, it was something like that. I don't have the. Uh, I don't think I have the quote uh, exactly right. Um, but um, there was Sinatra. Then there was Dean Martin. There was Sammy Davis Jr. Very accomplished guys. Very talented guys. And and then you had. You know, like the lesser members of what would be known today as like a posse, Sinatra's posse. Um, you had a guy like Joe, Joey Bishop who honestly didn't care if he was part of it or not. Um, 
you had a guy like Peter Lawford who would like cra- who who cravenly drooled for Sinatra's um uh you know smile of approval for lack of a uh, a different for, for lack of a better term I, I think of Don Rickles who could just get away with saying stuff that other people were afraid to think he could he could make jokes about uh, the mafia he could make jokes about guys wives and it cracks Sinatra up I mean he even he even made Sinatra the butt of jokes, and Sinatra thought it was hilarious. Sinatra would have had guys taken out and beaten. Uh, other guys, you know, would have would have paid a high price uh, for saying the sort of things that Rickles said. Uh, Rickles was was a, a funny guy, and as insulting as a, offensive as abrasive as he was, um, a lot of folks. Um, thought he was hilarious and Sinatra was one of them and he protected him for this reason so uh you know you look at the Rat Pack and and who do you find you know who, who where do you see yourself I mean who who would you be in that in that lineup and when I look at it here's what I'm prepared to tell you today what I'm not is Sinatra uh I think another way of looking at this uh comes across in the TV show The West Wing because you had Martin Sheen as the president he was President Bartlett and then you had uh, Leo McGarry played by John Spencer who was who was the chief of staff and uh, and then and then another there was another character Josh Lyman played by I guess Bradley Whitford um who was the deputy chief of, chief of staff? So here's the thing. Um, at one point, Sheen's Bartlett tells Lyman, Josh Lyman, says, "You don't, you don't want to be the guy. You want to be the guy the guy counts on." And he, because in the episode. Uh, Josh Lyman was <laughs> willing to throw the Bill of Rights uh, out the window at least for a while uh, to to uh, uh, please Leo. Uh, he wanted to. He didn't want to fail his boss. And you know, a lot of this goes to uh, goes back to like uh, what they still teach at the um, Naval Academy, which is uh, you know. A, 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 a book called a Message to Garcia that uh, if you're given the responsibility to take a message to so-and-so, in this case was Garcia, you did what you had to do. You walked through the jungle. You climbed mountains to take get the mas- message to Garcia. So uh, I do find within myself uh, a reluctance to be the guy, in part because I've gotten more accustomed I, I've gotten more at ease with my own shortcomings with my own limitations I'm I have equality but it's it's in it's inconsistent uh, sometimes I can be very winning and charming and sometimes I am just <laughs> just the worst and uh, 
you know, uh, and, and, and whatever we're talking about, I mean, you know, I mean, most of us, not even on karaoke night, uh, can sing like Sinatra. Uh, but, uh, whatever, whatever gifts we have, um, we probably don't rise to those levels. Again, like Scott Galloway, assume you're not that guy. So what do we have in support? Uh, one last um, quotation from Steve Van Zant about being the side man, being the, um, um, being the conciliary. He says, I liked being the underboss in the E Street Band, the conciliary. It kept me out of the spotlight, but allowed me to make a significant enough contribution to justify my own existence in my own mind. And there was a balance between me, Bruce, and John. We had artistic theory and artistic practice covered. Uh, but somewhere in 83, it started to feel like Bruce had stopped listening. He had always been the most single-minded individual with a natural extreme monogamy of focus in all things in relationships in songwriting and guitar playing and friends was that impulse now going to apply to his advisors at the time i was hurt by the thought that maybe john resented my complete direct access to bruce i liked john a lot and thought he felt the same about me if anything it should have been i should have been the resentful one but i wasn't in the end, I don't think John had anything to do with the way things change. There comes a time when people want to evolve without any baggage, to become something new and different without having to stay connected to the past. This was, I think, one of those occasions. Occasionally, uh, you need to be untethered. Without all this res retrospective wisdom, though, Bruce and I had our first fight, one of only three we would have in our lives. I felt I had been giving him nothing but good advice and had dedicated my whole life and career to him without asking for a thing. I felt I'd earned an official position in the decision-making process. He disagreed, so I quit. But I thought I, I think that the, the main part and the and the thing that I I uh, so I read all of that because of the narrative and because of how it brings us along in uh, Van Zant's. Um, uh, you know, development and what he gets into next. Uh, but I, I, I like this line. It kept me out of the spotlight, but allowed me to make a significant enough contribution to justify my own existence in my own mind. And I think that that speaks to me. Um, that attitude has been at work inside me for a long time. Um, I don't, it is a little funny. I, I, I think Brian's smarter than I am. I think he's funnier than I am, but he doesn't have, uh, the big extrovert personality, um, that has us. So anyway, so we're doing this podcast and it looks like I want to be the guy, but, um, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe we can promote Paul. <laughs> uh, my my nephew Paul and uh, he can be the guy and Brian and I can uh, be his wingmen because um, because really that's what you're talking about right you're talking about you know who 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 you're comfortable with 
uh, flying, uh, who you're comfortable having fly off your wing, just off your wing. Um, so uh, one of the other things uh, that I might, um, so, so then he, he, uh, I also want to, I, I want to share a, a couple of other things. Yeah, uh, he talks about uh, the current state of uh, pop music. Uh, he, he said, uh, the advent of MTV was the beginning of the end of rock's importance. Um, the accessibility of videos diluted and in, in many cases eliminated the experience of seeing a live rock band. It, it also, it is also, it has also allowed rock bands to exist without the es essential prerequisite of being great live performers. The corporatization of rock radio dealt another severely damaging, if not lethal, blow, as did consultants, whose only job was to homogenize and eliminate interesting, unique personality, as did lazy, ignorant, short-sighted record companies. The result, of course, was the waning of the rock era and the rise of a pop era that was more vapid meaningless, superficial, emotionless, soulless, unmemorable, and disposable than any previous era in the history of music. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I know he's being outrageous. I know he's using all sorts of flamethrower language. But, you know, I look, I look at the browse feature on Apple Music, and I, I just feel like a geezer thinking, is this what the kids are listening to? Um, a, a lot of auto-tuned kind of stuff, and and honestly, some of some of the singer-songwriter stuff uh, doesn't seem very good. And then I just think, okay, boomer, and and you know, it's like, well, you know, I've got my five or six, seven acts, you know, that I that I follow, and even if you know nobody likes Van Morrison anymore, I, I still kind of dig his music. So. Um, and what he's not is New Kids on the Block, and what he's not is Harry Styles, and, um, you know, so, like a geezer, uh, I have to make peace with the fact that, um, it's not just, it can't all be moon dance. All right, I want to share some of, uh, Van Zandt's insights on Springsteen himself. He says, for example, um, <clears throat> Uh, okay, so there was a there was a really um, so he says the pioneers of the fifties invented rock. The Renaissance acts of the sixties elevated it to an art form. Bruce was determined to create work that would not only distract, entertain, and transport but also educate, stimulate, and inspire. He wanted to provide irrefutable proof that life had meaning. As an audience, if an audience didn't leave a show feeling substantially better than when they arrived, we had failed. The E Street Band was delivering something that hadn't been delivered in its purest form since the Beatles. And I always felt that way. I mean, when I was a kid, going to a Springsteen show was like, you know, it was this amazing, amazing experience. Um, 
back to uh, uh, Springsteen um, said uh, um, and again I'm going to paraphrase uh, paraphrase Van Zandt says we we all briefly became drug addicts on this one he's talking about uh, darkness he says except Bruce he was the only guy I knew who never did drugs he had his own vice which was mentally beating the crap out of himself um and then um, uh, we've already talked about Springsteen's uh, artistic ambitions. Uh, so the, the, then he moves on and he's talking about the, the making the river. Uh, it says somewhere during this period, Bruce opened a vein of creativity that had waited years to be spiked. Suddenly it was as if every song he had heard in his entire life was channeling through him, was rearranging at a molecular level, and came spilling out in song after song. After having only a few outtakes for Born to Run, he suddenly was writing 40, 50, 60 amazing songs per record and just as quickly rejecting them. No one had ever done this before. You're making an album, you write 10 good songs, and you put it out. There was no exception to that rule. I didn't understand it at the time. Now I realize I was reaching for something new, a theme for the album he couldn't articulate. He was on a roll and he was going to see where it led. He was so determined to find a new identity, he began to separate the songs by genre. Art lyrics over here, pop lyrics over there. No one had ever made that distinction before and I felt strongly and wrongly as it turned out that it was a mistake. Songs got discarded, including some of the best ones. There was an entire album of pop rock greatness that was shelved for decades, finally emerging on collections of unreleased material and deluxe reissues like Tracks, The Promise, and The Ties That Bind. Every outtake a lost argument. Every outtake a lost argument. That's maybe the way it's said. Looking back, it's obvious now that any song resembling a love song or a pop song wouldn't have made any sense, with one exception. Early on, we had worked on a song called Because the Night. It was a different kind of love song, something special, something darker because of its minor key. We spent far more time on it than any other song, and I contributed considerably to the tricky arrangement. I thought it would be our breakthrough. And then he talks about how Jimmy uh, Iovine um, <laughs> took it down to, uh, uh, and, and by the way, I, I misspoke. Uh, I thought that they were talking, I thought that this was uh, the period where, uh, uh, about the river, but I think this is still darkness on the edge of town because that's when, um, uh, because the night uh, was hustled down to Patty Smith, who was recording uh, in, a, in a different studio in the same facility, and it became her biggest hit. Um, uh, so that, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah, that was darkness. Uh, as for the river, Van Zandt writes, the river had a completely different atmosphere than the previous two albums. Bruce's identity had settled into the rural stand-and-fight, speaking from the working-class perspective, persona of darkness, which didn't mean he wasn't still in his right and record a million songs and find the album in their later mode, but at least this batch sounded great. 
so it was a much more pleasant atmosphere for our endless song arguments which I usually lost and the river was a double album which meant more room for some fun songs along with the substance Bruce kept hungry heart but threw out classics like loose ends take them as they come roulette and restless nights who needs them I happen to like crush on you but in place of where the bands are or Mary Lou or I want to be with you I don't know the other subject was that was discussed enthusiastically was the treatment of slow songs Bruce and John were together on this the sparser the better Bruce was always so concentrated concentrated on his writing on the page with good reason and great results but I'm not sure he ever fully understood the difference between a song and a record. My attention deficit disorder couldn't take it. I was constantly trying to add production and arrangement ideas to songs like Racing in the Streets and Wreck on the Highway, and he wanted stark and stoic because that's where the cinematic lyrics, that's what the cinematic lyrics suggested. But a record ain't a movie. It's a fine line between, it's a fine line how sparse you can take something without the visual assistance before you lose an audience. There's no right or wrong here. That's what makes the longest discussions. But according to my ADD, they occasionally go too far. Check out the two versions of Racing in the Street for a good example. But Bruce preferred erring on the side of desolation. And you have to respect the discipline of sacrificing the musicality of a song to make a point. Whatever. If he's happy, I'm happy. I'm very proud of The River, which remains my favorite official album, but too many of the best songs ended up on the second disc of tracks. Well, this is what this friends is why you have horse races. This is why <laughs> This is why you have these arguments with your buddies over beer. I think that Van Zant makes some great points. I also think that you know the the, the finished uh, the finished product, as Springsteen uh, put it out, um, is pretty enduring and uh, pretty terrific. So. Uh, Getting back, getting back to the book a little bit. Um, look, I, I focus on Springsteen here because, uh, outside of a general cultural working familiarity, um, I'm not really familiar with the with the Soprano so much. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm not gonna belabor his work with uh, artists against apartheid, apartheid and his. Uh, trips to South Africa, though he certainly put himself into dangerous situations, so you have to respect his um, uh, physical courage. Uh, you know, certainly his moral conviction, his his uh, uh, standing on that. Um, you know, I'm sure South Africa is a better place because Nelson Mandela got out and didn't want everybody's uh, head on a pike, and 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 uh, certainly the regime that was there you know in the 80s which was about the first time anybody could make put place South Africa on the map um, you know the the apartheid regime was 
you know, reprehensible. Um, you know, the other thing that I think of, uh, Van Zant does a couple of other things. One is if you listen to uh, I Ain't Gonna Play Sun City today you, or, or watch the video on YouTube, you're really struck by um, his, uh, how much he was, um, he was sensitive to rap music as it was coming up in, in New York. Um, hip-hop uh, so he was it, it, it had a it had a strong dance beat um, the the cadence was uh, a, a rap cadence um, he, he makes another point too and that is about the line between uh, fashion and flamboyance uh, that that was missing um, that he liked and and you can see by the way he dresses now and there's reasons why he dresses the way he dresses now uh, he was in an accident that uh, uh, took out a big chunk of his um, hair I presume his scalp so he, he, he wears he wears these flashy uh, scarves um, in old pictures you'll see him uh, in a hat um, um, but he's he's become a very colorful flamboyant uh, dresser uh, what's, the, what's the other thing um, he's also gained weight whereas Springsteen still looks like you know he could uh, do 200 push-ups without breaking a sweat um, even though he's you know looks like an old man um, Van Zant, who's just a year younger uh, has put on weight he doesn't look as old but he's probably not in as good a shape and um, take it from someone who knows you get older and you're less inclined to tuck in your shirt unless you absolutely positively have to and so that's going to explain some of uh, Van Zandt's uh, style uh, uh, sartorial choices okay uh, so I focused on Springsteen because uh, I don't really know the Sopranos um, uh, I, I respect uh, Steve Van Zandt's accomplishments um, I already talked about uh, producing um, uh, Lone Just uh, uh, he, he, he produced uh, uh, Southside Johnny uh, and the Ashbury Jukes uh, to Dylan um, you know he, he uses horns incredibly effectively uh, I like his guitar sound uh, lyrically I think he's uneven but I like him uh, his first record had a great single which was forever if I give you my heart would you love me forever and some great tracks it was very New York City it was it was very Italian which was interesting but not captivating uh, I never fell into the uh, it, just, it just didn't work on me and it's not because I'm um, you know wider than Michael's Michael Corleone's wife Kay um, I just you know the, the Italians are great uh, but I, I never want especially wanted to be one um, uh, his second album uh, Van Zandt's second album was noisier um, and not quite punk as I said it was it was more like um, New York City rocker flash um, lyrically though it opened up um, stores uh, 
stories on other levels uh, and, and it confirmed what I was already becoming aware of personally, uh, which is the political oppression that exists around the world. Uh, I knew it was out there. Um, his his uh, second uh, album, um, Van Zandt's, uh, we're talking about uh, Van Zandt's second album, uh, Voice of America, uh, which um, struck a, a leftist revolutionary tone that that harkened to the Spanish Civil War, uh, which is to say, uh, as a young, as a young guy, as a young man, uh, I dug it. Um, you know, you think of the Spanish Civil War, you think of um, Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, you think about the Lincoln Brigade, um, and, and, and that was attractive, and, and uh, it, it was attractive to, you know, think about uh, over, you know, being anti-fascist. Um, I don't, I don't say that for one second with sympathy. Uh, for the people in the streets of Portland, Oregon, and elsewhere who who claim to be that, um, and who really seem to just want to, I, I, don't, I don't even know, don't want to get into it, but I think a lot of people talk a good game and then just want to throw bricks through Starbucks windows, and I've thought that for 20 years. Um, the liner notes of Voice of America um, used and thereby introduced me to uh, Picasso's great painting, Guernica, which I may be mispronouncing, Guernica. Um, only my dog knows for sure. I'm going to say Guernica, uh, which is in the north of Spain, and it was a place where Franco's uh, forces just firebombed um, this this city and it was horrible devastation and everybody who saw it knew it and Picasso does, did this huge painting I mean it's like a wall sized painting and it's you know it's it's cubist and it's got you know like the the uh, um, is it a minotaur who's like half horse and half a man and uh, he's obviously a, 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 a war, uh, an, inst an in instrument of war, um, and, and you see people suffering, and you see one man reaching for a window, which is the only thing that's giving any light in the whole thing. Anyway, um, that, that was my introduction to, to uh, Picasso and uh, political art as it were. And I think that this is, if I may, this is what I like about this venue, this ability to podcast and to make connections, but also to share certain connections. So look, I, I think um, I get a little tired of uh, Steve Van Zandt's snotty political asides because, you know, they don't seem especially 
sophisticated uh, or nuanced. They just seemed anti one side, um, you know, um, the right, whatever that means. I'm still reading Matt Continetti's book, um, you know, and look, I, I, I'm not trying to take a political side, but I, I can tell you that um, the far left uh, has got its problems. Uh, it's interesting to uh, see the sort of people who are coming to, to similar conclusions anyway. Um, uh, so, so Picasso and um, so there, there's Picasso, uh, there's um, the Spanish Civil War. Later I learn um, that leftist revolutionaries from 1930 Spain to Latin America in the 80s and beyond uh, did some pretty horrible stuff and um, to not realize that, to not acknowledge that, uh, was and is politically and historically naive. And frankly, there's no excuse uh, for Van Zandt's, um, you know, frequent, uh, snotty and shallow, I think, political asides. Uh, like many experts in specific fields, um, he presumes he's an expert in many discrete fields, and he's wrong. Uh, but that's not what we're judging Steve Van Zandt and uh, his book, Unrequited Infatuations, on. Um, in the final analysis, you've got to trust the guys you ride with. Uh, the skill and experience and loyalty and courage and their love and their history. Um, that's being the guy who flies off your wing. That, that's who you want to see when you look to your left on a bad night. Um, that's the guy that the guy counts on. And that's what you're judging on. So, uh, <clears throat> That's going to conclude episode 92. Again, I want to apologize to Missy, uh, Tirza, and Paul. And uh, we will record again very soon. Um, I want to remind you all to check out uh, Denver's number one coolest uh, comic bookstore, uh, All in a Dream Comics at 3115 East Colfax Avenue in Denver. Uh, you can go to allinadream.us or you can give Ray a call at area code 303-333-8616. Additionally, I want you to bear in mind mrswinger.com and I have just now placed the order for a new color tea. Um, so we've got the navy teas. We've, we're getting a uh, dark gray tea. And for the ladies, <laughs> a little something for the ladies, we've got um, uh, racerback tanks uh, to work out or to go shopping in Trader Joe's. Uh, and all of this can be checked out at um, Managing Expectations Podcast. That's one word. 
com, managing expectations podcast.com. That's going to conclude this episode of the Managing Expectations podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Hope it gave you something to think about. And I hope it makes you want to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. We are getting really close to a couple milestones. I think that's really cool. Uh, So um, don't hesitate, please, to pass the word about the cool things we've got going on. You guys, I'm really happy that you uh, let me spend some time with you this way. Take care. Uh, This is Winger saying rock and roll.